Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. 1,000 families in Connecticut experience homelessness each year. Children in those families could be a child in your son or daughter's class. How should educators talk with students about homelessness? Coming up, we'll hear from the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. The nonprofit has created lesson plans for teachers to help them talk about it with students. The coalition's Madeline Ravitch will join us later this hour. First, a proposal to merge CVS and Aetna, or for CVS to acquire Aetna, in a $69 billion deal faces its first hurdle after a public hearing. The state insurance department now has 30 days to decide whether to approve the deal, and the federal government must also give its approval. But is this a good deal for consumers? Do you think the merger will hinder competition and limit your savings? Or will a CVS Aetna partnership lead to innovative, less expensive strategies to deliver health care? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email us, where we live at WMPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome back to the show Harriet Jones. She's business reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Harriet, thanks for coming in. You're welcome, Lucy. Aetna has deep roots in uh, the state of Connecticut. I, I read, I think, a, a, a Governor Malloy quote is they've been here since 1853. That's right. Well, they were founded in, in Hartford in 1853 and, you know, pretty much synonymous with the insurance industry here. You know, really a, a very um, iconic corporate citizen of Hartford. Um, but, you know, of late, that has been somewhat in doubt. We saw them try to do another huge merger a couple of years ago with Humana. Um, as part of this kind of wave of consolidation in the healthcare industry. That got blocked by the Department of Justice, by federal antitrust regulators. And after that, there was some uncertainty. They actually, as, as part of the Humana merger, had, you know, kind of hinted they might move their headquarters out of Hartford. After that failed, uh, the CEO, Mark Bertolini, announced plans that he was going to move the headquarters to New York City. They were going to build themselves a fancy new office block just, uh, you know, right next to Chelsea Market in, in, in lower Manhattan, uh, you know, next to Google and YouTube and all the rest of it. Um, but those plans again changed once the CVS deal came on the scene. Remind us, uh, Mark Bertolini's uh, uh, love for Hartford has waned it's over somewhat. the last few years. So <laughs> explain again why he wanted to move the headquarters uh, to New York City. So he's, you know, what he said is he wants to kind of reimagine the company, not as a legacy insurance company, but more to do with healthcare more broadly and to do with the data analytics of healthcare too. So he wanted to think of it more, you know, to have the technology component of the company be more prominent. Um, and so he felt that Manhattan was, you know, a, a better place to do that. And I think he's also personally more fond of Manhattan than, than Hartford. <laughs> and so with the news that uh, CVS was interested in acquiring uh, Aetna, uh, those concerns from Hartford officials like the mayor and others, the governor, that they would move the headquarters, uh, that went away because CVS uh, said that they didn't have any intention of wanting to see the headquarters uh, out of state. But in terms of this uh, uh, potential deal. Uh, coming up, we're going to hear about some of the concerns from consumer advocates and others. But what exactly needs to happen step by step in terms of approval for the CVS and Aetna uh, 
acquisition. So any big public company merger, you know, requires antitrust regulators to sign off on it. But if you're in a very heavily regulated industry like the insurance industry, like healthcare, there's that many more steps because not only does the DOJ itself at the federal level have to sign off, every state where you sell plans or you have operations also has to have its own hearing. The insurance department in that state might want to impose its own conditions. None of the states actually have, you know, they can't stop the deal, but they can recommend to the DOJ that, you know, in fact, California has in this case, you know, um, raised its very loud voice to the Department of Justice and said that it doesn't believe that this merger should go ahead. Whereas we've seen states like Connecticut, well, Connecticut hasn't ruled yet, but it also has imposed conditions on the company. It uh, now has an agreement with CVS that um, it will keep Aetna's headquarters in Hartford for 10 years. It will keep its workforce at approximately the level it is now, which is about 5,300. It will, it's going to keep that workforce level for four years. So regulators have those kinds of powers to impose conditions. So that almost sweetens the deal uh, for the state of Connecticut to try, um, if you guys want to get this uh, uh, this merger, this deal in place, uh, what's in it for us? But there have been opinions out there that why just 10 years? Why not commit to Connecticut uh, in the long term? Right. Um, yeah, of course. I, mean, it, I think you're right. There was an editorial in the Hartford Current saying, you know, why can't we just keep it here forever? You're never going to get that kind of commitment from a company because they have no idea, you know, what business conditions are going to be in the future, what the shape of the company is going to be in the future. Um, so, you know, that that's not realistic to expect to get in this type of negotiation. Uh, in studio with me is Harriet Jones, business reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. As we talk about this uh, pending deal with CVS looking to acquire Aetna, which is uh, uh, one of the third, I think it's the third largest insurer in the nation. Uh, coming up, we're going to learn more about CVS as a pharmacy benefit manager and some of the concerns with this idea um, of a, a PBM, as they're known, um, acquiring uh, an insurance company. But in terms of when we look at uh, the status uh, quo and keeping uh, Aetna here, um, uh, in the state. Um, this deal, is it likely to get approval from the federal government? Because I believe there was a, a previous uh, a deal between Cigna and Express Scripts, which is a similar uh, kind of relationship that got approval. Yeah. So these deals are, they're fairly new. So um, this is a deal essentially between a health insurer and what's called a PBM, a pharmacy benefits manager, which is the, the, the bit of CVS that's kind of in- interesting in this deal. Uh, one, one of those exists already, that's Optum and United Healthcare. Another one just did get um, its federal approval. It's not. This is Cigna and Express Scripts. Cigna, of course, a Bloomfield-based insurer. It has its DOJ approval. It doesn't have all of its state uh, uh, sign-offs yet. So it's not quite over the finish line, but it's very, very close. It's going to get there. So the tea leaves are kind of good for this deal. It's slightly less straightforward than Cigna Express Scripts because they do have some overlap in their Medicare D um, and Medicare Part D provision and, and CVS do. So I think we will see the DOJ requiring some divestitures. They'll have to sell off parts of the company. But I think at this stage, you know, industry watchers would be surprised if the DOJ blocked this. Uh, another uh, development uh, to for, for Aetna and CVS to see their this deal go through, Aetna agreed to sell off uh, their Medicare Part D. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this covers a prescription plan that covers 2 million people because CVS also has a huge um, uh, share of that uh, Medicare uh, program. And so, again, this would uh, maybe alleviate some concerns from federal regulators about antitrust. That's what they're trying to do. They're to, you know Because I think that people would have thought that they would have had much too large of a slice of the market. They would have dominated the market far too much had they not been 
asked to sell off or, you know, have they not volunteered to sell off that part of their business? So that, yeah, it's it's kind of a, it's a signal to regulators that, yes, we're willing to work with you and, you know, we're willing to address your anti-competitive concerns. Can we talk about like, the larger trends that we're seeing here? Because you'd mentioned uh, Aetna and other companies were trying to merge with uh, insurance companies previously. Uh, that was uh, uh, rejected by uh, the federal government. But in terms of when we think about our health care system and the rising costs of prescription drugs, uh, we just recently talked about how hospitals are working to acquire more physician practices. Uh, this uh, move to consolidate uh, and have partnerships is it really a good deal for uh, patients like you and I if we need healthcare down the road? I think you know that. I mean, that's the huge question, right? That's that's what, and I, I think we heard two economists give evidence before the Connecticut Insurance Department just in the last few days, who said they really don't know. They couldn't tell us, you know, it's going to have this effect or it's going to have that effect. It's going to raise prices or it's going to lower prices. They don't know. And I think this is the problem with a lot of what's going on in healthcare right now. You know, we saw the Affordable Care Act, you know, try to kind of grapple with this monster. Although many people, you know, there's a big criticism of the Affordable Care Act that it didn't really address the cost curve. It didn't look to bring down costs. None of the Republican plans that have been brought up, you know, once the Republicans took control of the White House and of Congress, none of their plans have really addressed cost either. So in some senses, I think what's happening here is that we're seeing the marketplace itself try to grapple with this question of how do we organize healthcare in this country and how do we address that, you know, kind of rising cost curve. Uh, earlier, we talked about uh, this commitment from uh, uh, CVS and Aetna that uh, if the deal goes through, they're going to stick with Connecticut for another uh, 10 years. Uh, that's also probably good for the narrative uh, that policymakers are, are constantly combating, which is this idea that you have big companies wanting to leave the state. And I'm curious, as a business reporter, uh, do we have companies of this stature interested in coming to Connecticut? It's a complicated picture. You know, I think we... S- we tend to see the headlines, you know, GE leaves, Aetna wants to leave, uh, and we think, you know, there's a, a mass flight out of Connecticut. It's, I mean, the, the picture is a lot more complicated than that. You know, and the, those big names tend to capture the headlines. But if you think about other big companies, Stanley is committed to being here, UTC is committed to being here. We've seen, uh, you know, I think the state would point to things like Infosys coming into Hartford, um, Seven Stars Cloud, which is now called something else. It's called Ideonomics, the big Chinese company that's coming to West Hartford. But, you know, even below that kind of big corporate level, there's a whole ecosystem of companies that we really have to think about. We have to think about how are we um, nurturing startups? How are we persuading people to start businesses here? And what are we doing for our growth companies, those kind of in the middle who maybe, you know, they maybe have 100 employees or so. They're not a huge company, but they're starting to grow. They're starting to, you know, get their operations established here. The business cycle and the business ecosystem is very complicated. And I think if you just judged by the headlines. Uh, you're not getting full picture. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Harriet Jones is here, business reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. And we want to hear from you, too. Are you insured by Aetna? Do you shop at CVS? What advantages or disadvantages do you see in this proposed merger between both companies? And why are pharmacists, doctors, and others speaking out against such a plan? WMPR's Harriet Jones is going to stay with us as we explore those questions. And coming up, we're going to hear from Connecticut's healthcare advocate, too. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The American system of delivering health care has long been seen as broken. Efforts to dismantle the Federal Affordable Care Act have been helped as insurers leave state health exchanges. Now these insurance companies are looking for growth in one way is through mergers and acquisitions. But is that the best kind of deal for consumers? Those questions have been raised in Connecticut as pharmacy giant CVS attempts to acquire Hartford-based Aetna, the third biggest insurer in the nation. For more on this proposal, and studio with me is Harriet Jones, business reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. And joining us now is Ted Doolittle, healthcare advocate for the state of Connecticut. Ted, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. I understand there was a public hearing uh, recently looking at this uh, this uh, CVS wanting to acquire uh, Aetna. Uh, explain uh, the concern before we get to what we heard um, at that hearing. When we think about uh, types of mergers, uh, there's horizontal mergers, and then what we're hearing now is a vertical integration, which is what would explain this particular deal between CVS and Aetna. Can you describe the difference in between both? So you're absolutely right. The merger of two insurance companies is one thing. This is uh, essentially, as you described, a pharmacy benefit uh, uh, middleman uh, buying an insurance company. So it's two different types of businesses. That makes it somewhat easier to uh, uh, acquire perhaps some of the regulatory approvals needed, but the impact on consumers is still very important important. You mentioned, I mentioned uh, pharmacy benefit managers. Uh, when we think about that uh, as the middleman, explain um, how CVS, uh, um, how they do business and what are some of the concerns with how PBMs operate in terms of, of where savings uh, technically go, not necessarily back to the consumer per se. So my office represents consumers uh, and, and we represent folks who are having difficulties with their health insurance company. Uh, we have a staff of nurses and attorneys and paralegals who can represent people for free when they're trying to get a claim paid, something like that. So I come at it from the perspective of the consumer. And what we have here is is a situation where the uh, uh, the the merger that is con- contemplated will have direct impacts on the amount of people, uh, the, the amount that people have to pay when they are standing at the checkout counter at, at, at the pharmacy. So it sounds like a boring business story, but it gets a lot less boring when you're at CVS and somebody tells you the drug for your daughter is going to cost $500 that month. Uh, when we think about uh, this acquisition between CVS and uh, Aetna, um, when we look at uh, previous deals that the federal government has approved, uh, we mentioned uh, Express Scripts uh, and what was the other? Cigna. Cigna. Mm-hmm. Um, so have we seen the concerns that you and others have raised about this potential deal? Is that coming to play with the, with the Cigna Express Scripts uh, proposal? And what are we seeing from that plan? So uh, there are deals on the table that haven't been concluded, but the one that uh, has been in place for a long time, of course, is the United Health Group. Uh, Optum is the name of their pharmacy middleman. Um, I would say that the folks who who uh, are customers of United Health Group haven't, uh, when they're talking to their neighbors over the fence, and you're an Aetna uh, person versus a uh, United Healthcare person, you're not paying less for drugs. So I would say that the, uh, uh, the savings really need to be uh, carefully uh, documented through this hearing process, and the uh, uh, state regulators, in this case the insurance department, should actually uh, create some accountability and some, uh, they should pr- try to uh, understand what the savings are going to be, and they should hold the companies to account in later years. 
I would like to see, for instance, a three, a year, a five year, a 10 year check in to see if the supposed savings have occurred. And if not, there should be some type of accountability and some true up back to the consumers who are going to bear what I fear might be the higher costs of this merger. Harriet, we mentioned the state insurance department uh, has 30 days to consider whether to approve this deal. We heard Ted Doolittle uh, suggest uh, uh, ways that the uh, state could hold uh, CVS and Aetna accountable. Is that something that the insurance company can then put in place? Say, well, if we're gonna, if we're going to approve this, let's see where uh, the cost savings actually go, and we want you to uh, define it. Uh, clearly uh, for people so that they can be, so it's more transparent. Is that possible? So certainly, you know, the the, the newly merged company, if, if this goes through, is going to have a very long and intimate relationship with the Connecticut Insurance Department because they will be their regulator. So, you know, they're going to have ongoing um, negotiations and ongoing meetings um, and ongoing approvals that have to happen. So yes, the, the Connecticut Insurance Department does have some leverage here um, if it chooses to use it to say, you know, we'll put these conditions in place down the line, as Ted was describing, you know, we can audit you for, you know, h- how this is actually working for consumers. And if you don't meet these targets, you know, we'll, it, it's it will be interesting to see what teeth they can put in place. But yes, uh, certainly they do have some options. And I think a lot of the uh, consumer advocates like Ted have said this is what the insurance department should be doing. It can't block this merger in and of itself. It doesn't, you can't, you know, stop it going ahead, but it can certainly impose more conditions on it. Uh, we reached out to CVS and Aetna uh, if they wanted to uh, come on the show, and they each provided a statement. Uh, Aetna President Karen Lynch uh, shared, and this is something that they also shared at that public hearing before the legislature, um, the committee, we have an incredibly fragmented silent system, she says. It's too expensive and much too complicated to navigate through. Today's healthcare systems are largely designed to fix people when they're broken and not keep them healthy and active throughout their lives. So I wanted to go back to you, uh, Ted Doolittle, again, Office of Healthcare Advocate. When we look at a potential deal like this, what are some of the benefits uh, if you were to get that transparency, if you were able to see cost savings for consumers, if they can go to their local CVS uh, and get preventative care and it's more accessible to them? Can you walk us through what some of the benefits of this proposal could be? So uh, absolutely. And and going back to Harriet's uh, point about the, the conditions, I would like to see. Uh, I, I just, I just somewhat assailed United Health Group. I want to give a shout out to them uh, in terms of their recent pledge to start uh, uh, sending the rebates to the consumers for part of their of their business. I think uh, United Health Group should extend that uh, uh, to all of their business. And I think there's an opportunity for Connecticut or other states who are considering this deal to ask Aetna CVS to make that kind of pledge. Are you going to make sure that the rebates that are big, that come from the pharmaceutical manufacturers, go to the actual person who's buying the drug as opposed to the uh, health insurance company. Another thing we can do in terms of uh, uh, trying to create good corporate citizenship is uh, Aetna is not on the exchange. United Healthcare is not on the exchange. Cigna is not on the exchange. Harvard Pilgrim's not on the exchange. There is more that, to good corporate citizenship than just sponsoring little league ball teams. These folks should be on board with the exchange uh, uh, healthcare is different. P- many people have won Nobel Prizes in economics explaining why healthcare is different. We can't make rational choices when it's our own health or the health of a loved one in place. Our community, for better or for worse, has gone down the road of the Affordable Care Act, and uh, these companies are not participating. And I really think that that is 
uh, doesn't reflect well in those companies. Harry, can you remind us why are these companies pulled out of the state health care exchange to begin with? Was it because they were losing money? Basically, yes. They said it was far too expensive for them to be in. Um, and the kinds of lives that they were covering, they were finding that the people they got through the exchange were older or sicker, um, you know, had more issues. So it just wasn't a, an, it wasn't a profitable business for them. You can join our conversation as we talk about uh, this potential deal between uh, uh, pharmacy giant CVS, many of us shop there, as well as Aetna. You might get insurance through them, Hartford-based insurer, one of the third largest in the nation. Harriet Jones is here with us, business reporter for Connecticut Public Radio, and Ted Doolittle, healthcare advocate for the state of Connecticut. Uh, the number to call, 860-275-7266. Is this uh, potential deal something that you're looking forward to? Uh, what are some of the, the weaknesses in uh, the healthcare that you're receiving? Is it hard to get an appointment at your primary care physician? Would it be easier for you to go to the local Minute Clinic in your neighborhood? Again, the number 860-275-7266. I wanted to go back to you, Ted. We were talking about these uh, vertically integrated systems, and I'd asked about, you know, what are some potential benefits uh, if the deal is done correctly? Kaiser Permanente, um, I guess, is an example of vertical integration. Could you describe uh, that system out in California? Yeah, so Kaiser Permanente is is a system that originated as a physician's group many years ago, maybe 80 years ago or, or so. And what they did was they gradually just took on the uh, patients without the interference of, uh, 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 of an insurance company. So Kaiser Permanente is a model where there's no difference between the insurance company and the uh, provider. In other words, if you're a Kaiser Permanente uh, insured, you go to a Kaiser Permanente doctor, and they have uh, thousands and thousands of doctors and hospitals and so forth. Um, that can can create uh, great efficiencies, and Kaiser Permanente is just one example. There are several organically grown, uh, 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 pretty old systems, Geisinger in Pennsylvania, Intermountain Health uh, in, the, in the Rocky Mountain area, that, that have this kind of integration so there's no separate insurance company that can be very efficient. Here we're talking about something that hasn't grown up organically. It's a merger. It's an act, and it's an acquisition. And as I mentioned before, with the United Health Group Optum model that we're looking at here, I don't see that there has been a great amount of efficiency or savings. I could be uh, convinced uh, otherwise, but I haven't seen the evidence of it. So that's what gives me the concern about these proposed mergers that Aetna tie up with uh, with uh, uh, that we're talking about now, and then also the Cigna Express scripts merger. Uh, we mentioned the public hearing earlier. I think uh, one of the people that spoke was uh, Nate Tinker from the Connecticut Pharmacy Association. There's actually independent pharmacies out yeah, there. there are, yeah. How, how uh, will this kind of deal hurt them, Harry? Yeah, they were very concerned uh, that, that it may do because, of course, CVS is a behemoth in the pharm- pharmacy industry. And, you know, they're concerned that if CVS now controls this big network, they're going to say, well, you know, you independent pharmacy, you have to take our deal or you can't be part of our network, um, you know, take it or leave it. And he's concerned that independent pharmacies will be driven out of business by this. In terms of the underserved community, uh, Ted Doolittle, again, Office of the Healthcare Advocate, these CVS Minute Clinics, um, are they something that could be seen in more of these underserved communities? Look, I think any time we have more clinics, uh, especially in underserved areas, it, it, it can be a good thing. I think, uh, I think you have to look at how it's done. 
uh, is Aetna going to now require all its folks to go to the CVS Minute Clinic and reduce their choice uh, 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 and, and perhaps take away business from other competitors um, and take away choice from the consumers? Those are some of the issues that we need to really scrutinize. When we think about the factors in play that are causing these insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers to think about partnering, um, how much does Amazon have to do uh, <laughs> with uh, their concern about uh, being disrupted, uh, Harriet? Because Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, they're all joining together to think about what are more ca- cost-effective ways to deliver health care to their employees. Yeah, certainly. The, uh, you know, um, the, the, the prospect of Amazon getting into the pharmacy business or into the healthcare business in a big way um, yeah, it's certainly a, a kind of a specter for these companies. They have to think about what kind of competition that would provide to them. Um, but it also, you know, Amazon to a certain extent provides a model too of, of a company that, you know, has grown from one specialty into many, many specialties. Um, so, yeah, that's that's in the back of their minds for sure. And Ted DeLillo, uh, before we run out of time, uh, we know that uh, the Affordable Care Act and efforts to dismantle it are are still in play in Washington, I believe, in the courts. But when we look at a deal like this, is it a signal to the federal government about new ways to deliver health care and uh, the, the push towards single payer down the road? Well, it it uh, certainly it it, it certainly is is uh, a new way to do business. And uh, when you're talking about single payer, actually, you, you have to think. Uh, whether you're for or against single payer, uh, you, you might want to ask who's going to be the single payer. Aetna would probably be fine with single payer if Aetna were the single payer, right? And so, as they try to expand their empires, that's exactly what they're they're trying trying to do. Um, whether or not you want a profit-driven company to be at the center of uh, of, of, of a, an expansion like that, or you want a nonprofit-driven organization like uh, the Medicare and the Medicaid agencies down in D.C. Um, or the healthcare exchange up in Connecticut to be at the center. Those are some of the key issues to really look at. Who are going to be the decision makers uh, and who, who, who are going to have the best interests of the consumers at heart better? Is it going to be profit-driven entities or is it going to be uh, quasi-public, let's call it, entities like the Access Health Connecticut uh, Obamacare Exchange, the ACA Exchange up in Connecticut. We'll have to leave it there. I want to thank Ted Doolittle, healthcare advocate for the state of Connecticut, for joining us. Thank you, Ted. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Also, Harriet Jones was here, business reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Always a pleasure, Harriet. Thanks, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to look at an innovative way to talk about homelessness in the classroom. But first, Where We Live focuses on many topics and issues each day, from health care to the upcoming elections to exploring initiatives and programs found in our communities. We don't just talk to policymakers and experts. We talk to real people throughout our state who have stories to tell. If you appreciate these conversations, support us and Connecticut Public Radio with the pledge. Here are two of my colleagues with the number to call. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, humans have a long history as hunters of the land and water. On the next Where We Live, we'll consider the factors that have motivated men and women to hunt over the centuries and examine the environmental effects of hunting today. Do you hunt? We want to hear from you. That conversation on Thursday. Now, 1,000 families in Connecticut experience homelessness each year, and that includes more than 2,000 children. How should educators talk with students in the classroom about homelessness? The Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness has created lesson plans for teachers to help them talk with students about it. For more about this initiative, joining me now in studio is Madeline Ravitch, Development Advisor and Director of the Be Homeful Project at the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Madeline, welcome to the show. 
Thank you for having us. When we talk about homelessness, uh, we might think of an adult face, but this does impact children. How big of a problem is it in the state? Well, as you said, there are 1,000 families, including over 2,000 children who become homeless in our state each year. And when we say that, those are specifically the, the numbers of families that enter the shelter system. Um, and so a few years ago, we started this campaign called the Be Homeful Project to um, to address this issue because what we had found that it was that in most cases, it was possible to prevent families from becoming homeless in the first place if we just insert, intercepted them at the front door of shelter and found ways to keep them housed in the first place. So. Um, it's a big problem, but it's a solvable problem, and that's what we want people to know, that, it, that it's possible to end homelessness with, when we really focus on this specific strategy. When we think about um, housing insecurity and the impact on children, what are the lasting effects? Well, so it's an interesting fact that the number one predictor of whether somebody will be homeless as an adult is if they experience homelessness as a child. So it's really the trauma runs deep and it has lifelong impacts. And so that's why we really are trying to cut cut off this vicious cycle um, before it starts. But um, there are all sorts of there are health impacts, both mental and physical. Um, there are lots of different effects that um, that that homelessness has on children throughout life. You mentioned the Be Homeful project, and we were really interested in this curriculum that's been developed. Tell us about the idea, and how do you talk about this issue, whether it's uh, K through second grade up until high school? Right. So as I said, one of the one of the interesting things we've learned is that people's minds, when they are thinking about um, addressing homelessness, goes towards um, a lot of the stereotypes they have about homelessness, they imagine a person on the street. They may not think that there are children in their communities who are experiencing homelessness right now. Um, and so that's why we, um, we started this campaign to, um, to really address that issue. And we realized that while for adults, many of these um, ideas are baked into us, for children, we actually have an opportunity sh- to shape minds and get kids to think differently and to not think about children experiencing homelessness as, the, as those other people, but to realize that these are our peers and that we're all in this together. So um, we, um, with this in mind, we developed lesson plans. Um, we, backing up a little bit, we um, a few years ago joined forces with the iconic Paddington Bear, who's a storybook character who was homeless at the beginning of his um, story. And so we said, this is a great character. Um, let's make him our spokesbear and let's figure out ways to use his story to engage kids in age-appropriate ways. And um, so originally we had these... Um, these uh, story time guides that libraries throughout the state used, and that was a really um, wonderful um, thing to watch libraries all around the state doing these Paddington story times. And then we started to see, we started to learn through that process that kids of different ages absorb this information differently, and that we started to learn how we could speak differently to children at different ages. So um, we developed lesson plans that can be used starting as young as pre-K, um, and at the pre-K level, there are four different versions. The pre-K level, they focus on the importance of having a home and what having a home means to me. Um, at the elementary school level, we focus on um, using Paddington's experience to think about how homelessness, ha- how it would feel to be in his shoes. Um, in middle school um, and high school, we use a fabulous video um, of actually one of my colleagues and her sister talking about their own experience growing up with homelessness and how it's affected their the trajectory of our lives of their lives. And um, it, it all rolls up to um, kids doing marmalade dri- drives in honor of Paddington's favorite food, which are coin drives. Um, and so right now, actually, um, now until Thanksgiving, um, we are uh, not only get, trying to encourage schools to use these lesson plans, but also to hold marmalade drives with money they're raising being used for to help families stay housed in the first place. 
And I should also mention there's another lesson plan um, that goes hand in hand with the high school um, plan that is um, is uh, focused on homeless and unaccompanied youth. And that's a really powerful lesson plan that we're hoping that students and schools will use um, during Hunger and Homelessness Awareness Week, which is November 10th through 18th. Um, those lesson plans are really amazing because they educate students about their own rights under McKinney-Vento, which is the federal law um, for unstably housed youth, and um, gives kids the ability to learn how they can help themselves, how to help how to help others, and um, really, you know, our message is we're all in this together, and we're giving kids the tools to to make that to act on that. Uh, Madeline Ravitch is Development Advisor and Director of the Be Homeful Project of the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. As we learn about this initiative, this curriculum available to educators across the state to talk with students about homelessness, you mentioned in the high school level uh, there's a specific lesson plan uh, uh, mentioning unaccompanied uh, minors. Uh, tell us what went into that, because uh, so often in the news we're hearing about uh, what uh, migrant families are enduring, but the chances are um, you know, when we hear about certain states taking in uh, unaccompanied minors. We know that's a, a reality here in Connecticut. I mean, how do they, uh, how do you talk about this current event issue um, in the classroom um, with these students? Oh, that's a really interesting question. These lesson plans are really designed to focus on homelessness, and we haven't really um, stretched into the the larger um, territories. We've, de- you know, we have in certain ways insofar as um, we've had a, a fund um, that we worked with uh, United Way and many organ- many foundations across the state on um, to address poor Puerto Rico and that that um, crisis because all these things are intertwined. Um, but for for you know students in the, at the high school level, what people don't realize is that homelessness exists at the you know in the, and that um, it, it's a problem that we've worked over the last three three years to unearth through the homeless youth count, which takes place in January. It's an all volunteer effort where volunteers across the state work together to um, to do a count of homeless youth, and that's something that kids can be involved in. But um, but you know I think that. Um, again, we've figured out that, uh, and working with schools, actually, it was one of it were the schools in Meriden that we worked with to um, to start the youth, the high school youth lesson plans. Um, that when kids are equipped to help their peers, um, we can figure out who's experiencing homelessness right now and connect them with resources to help. And we should mention to our listeners, uh, if they are experiencing uh, issues of finding housing or homelessness, they can always call uh, 211. Uh, we've been talking about the student perspective, and so I wanted to bring into the conversation Grace Furia, who's a ninth grade student at Hall High School in West Hartford. Grace, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Madeline, if you could tell us how Grace uh, got involved in the project, and then Grace, tell us about your perspective as a student talking about homelessness in, in the classroom. Well, I'm so thrilled that Grace is here in in the studio with us today. Grace is one of our Paddington ambassadors, which is what we call kids who um, step up and learn about homelessness and take the lead on educating their peers and um, holding drives to help their to help their peers. And Grace has been working with us for a few years. I first met her when she was in sixth grade, um, working on a homelessness project, and um, she's stuck with it and you know really has influenced others. And we're so excited to have her here talking about the project. So Grace, in sixth grade, you were working on a homelessness project. Tell us about about that and then how um, you've been able to keep participating with the coalition. Yeah, so um, my mom works in the homeless housing world and we both thought it'd be a very interesting project to do and actually she reached out to Madeline and asked for an interview and so um, she interviewed me and I interviewed her (laughs) and I learned more about homelessness and I got really interested in it and wanted to help out more. 
Well, we were talking earlier about the stereotypes of homelessness. So um, as a, a student in the public school system, what are, are some stereotypes or ideas that um, your, uh, your fellow students have about homelessness? And how is something like this uh, helping to combat that? Definitely. So I really love these lessons plans because it shows that students, um, it shows students that homelessness isn't just, oh, adults. It impacts children, too. And we can be part of the solution. And Madeline, uh, if a teacher is talking about homelessness in the classroom and one of the students in the classroom is someone that's experienced homelessness, how do they navigate that? Right. So it, when it's possible to have a social worker in the room for a conversation, I think that's a really great thing. Um, but we really tried to design these lesson plans in a way that is sensitive um, to the dynamics that could play out in the, ha- in the classroom. Ultimately, what, um, what people should know is that every school has a McKinney-Vento liaison, um, which is the person charged with uh, making sure that all of the rights of children experiencing homelessness are, um, are taken care of. And so the teacher should connect the student with the McKinney-Vento liaison if they aren't already um, to make sure that they're getting whatever help we, um, they can get. Uh, when we think about the lesson plans that you've created and um, talking about this in a respectful way, um, how do these lesson plans encourage empathy? So empathy is a big theme right now. Um, and so, you know, but we've always thought empathy is important. And I think that we live in a state of haves and have nots. And it's very easy um, for people to think of homelessness as an issue that doesn't affect them. Um, when, in fact, what we find from our data is that um, homeless families come from many, if not all, of the towns in the state. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Again, we're talking about uh, homelessness and ways to encourage a conversation about uh, the issue that impacts uh, many of our community members, no matter where we live, but also ways to help. And I think that's part of your approach, too, with the Be Homeful Project, Madeline. Right. And I think building empathy, as you said, is so important that when we can help kids think about how homelessness affects their peers and learn that they can work together and that there is a solution that, by the way, only costs $1,000 per family um, to prevent families from being housed. People not only... have are able to sort of channel that compassion. They're able to understand that there's actually a solution that works. Uh, we've been talking about um, homelessness, and it's uh, already October. And often uh, this issue, there's a lot of attention around the holidays. But this is a year-round problem for for some in our community. Well, not only is it year-round, one of the things that's interesting, as you said, people think about homelessness during the holidays. um, But in fact, family homelessness peaks during the summertime. And the reason for that is that when children um, let out of school, um, that adds an extra burden for families that are already working so hard. So, um, so, you know, we do see spikes in homelessness during the the summertime. But um, we also know that this is when people think about homelessness, which is why we we actually are in the midst of our Be Homeful for the Holidays campaign. We just kicked off this week. This is an annual campaign we do with Connecticut Realtors and Citizen Bank and United Way, um, where for every $25 donated to our emergency fund, um, the uh, Paddington Bear book, Blankie or Board book is given to a child in shelter. So we've done this for the last two years. It's a way for people to be able to give something tangible, which is what we know adults like to do during the holidays um, for children. Um, we, adults can, can hold these drives um, to give gifts to children in shelters. But the best part is that um, every year this raises over $50,000 for us that we're able to use to keep families housed. And that's 50 families. So, you know, that's, that's a pretty big deal. 
Listeners can learn more about this uh, project at BeHomeful.org. And before we go, uh, Madeline, you know, we hear so often about how Connecticut has really made um, strides in ending homelessness in the communities. I think the goal is uh, in by 2020. And I'm curious if you could talk about um, some of the how the numbers have decreased. It's it's actually been remarkable. Connecticut's a real leader in the country, and other parts of the country look to us to learn um, what we're doing, um, especially around the well around chronic homelessness, which is an issue that we bought we've. Uh, been working on for quite a while and around family and youth homelessness. But we've seen a 25% decline in homelessness um, since 2007, which is really dramatic. Um, so we're, you know, we're seeing that when we use data um, and when we develop by name lists of who's experiencing homelessness and help people help build the system around 211, um, we really can make a difference. And that's why this campaign is so important, because when the resources are there, we can help more people stay in their homes and make sure that no child has to experience the hardship of homelessness. Well, I want to thank Madeline Ravitch, again, Development Advisor and Director of the Be Homeful Project at the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness. Also, thanks to Grace Fury, a ninth grade student at Hall High School in West Hartford, who's uh, helped uh, with this project. Grace, so nice to speak with you, too. <laughs> nice to speak with you. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff, and our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Uh, also, thanks to WMPR intern Phil Geolopsis. And you can learn more about our show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathan. And before we end, it's our fall fun drive where we ask listeners to support the programming like Where We Live and all the other great shows on Connecticut Public Radio. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. 